Um, they so they had set all of that up, and then David uh, is dancing in front of the ark. He's celebrating the fact that the Lord has delivered uh, the ark to Jerusalem, and that in the nation's capital now that's being set up, that um, that the Lord's presence is there with with the nation of Israel. And so he's very excited about this and he's dancing and um, in some form or fashion disrobing in front of everyone. And his wife, Mikhail, does not like that. And she confronts him about it. And David sees himself more as a servant of God than a king. And so proper decorum when the Lord's presence is there in front of him sort of goes out the window. And certainly the decorum that Saul, you know, more or less tried to keep up, I guess, uh, goes out the window in favor of bowing down in worship before the Lord and being in awe of what the Lord is doing. And so she takes exception to that and she really condemns him for it. And the tech, what the text makes clear in 2 Samuel 6 is that she is not only the daughter of Saul, but she ends childless. And so that gives us a clue as the reader that the the Lord is deciding definitively in favor of David and against Saul. And what David is doing is correct. And what Saul has done and the, even the decorum that maybe he practiced or that his family is, cares about is, is, is wrong. What's more important is to be humble before the Lord, which David is um, uh, showing, I guess, demonstrating before the ark. And so uh, the author is careful to, to note for us that this, this lady who's so uh, prim and proper, as it were, is uh, wrong and, and ends childless, thus ending Saul's line. And so the, the Lord then, um, he, David goes into chapter seven of, of Second Samuel, and he's desiring to build a, a temple, a permanent temple for the Lord, something that is forever lasting for the Lord in Jerusalem. And so he tells his plan to Nathan the prophet, and it sounds like a great plan. And Nathan even at first gives the thumbs up for it. But then later on that night, Nathan gets a word from the Lord that says, no, he's not going to build me a permanent dwelling. Actually, I'm going to make him a permanent house. And so he gives, he grants to David, he makes it essentially a covenant with David that says, you're going to have a, a house that lasts forever. And by house, uh, it, we're not talking about a physical structure, but a genealogical structure. Uh, David's lineage is going to be on the line, on the, on the throne uh, forevermore and everlasting, just as, as David wanted to build a permanent house for Yahweh, Yahweh is going to build a permanent lineage uh, kingly lineage for uh, for David, and so uh, he grants him that, or he he's going to uh, make that covenant with him. And so tonight, what I want to do is really just take that covenant and just only look at the covenant that the Lord makes with uh, with David to build him this everlasting lineage, and talk about not only what is happening in the text and break that down, but then also theologically how we're to think about this uh, this passage. This passage is probably uh, one of maybe five or ten of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Of course, all of them are important, and there's not a passage that we could eliminate. I don't mean to say that, but this passage requires—we could spend months on this passage alone and probably never exhaust it all— 
Um, and, but, but so I, so I think it's incredibly important what this passage is actually doing here in scripture and how the new Testament authors end up picking up on that, which we'll, we'll even begin to uncover as we go through this. So let's establish a couple of things first, as it relates to chapter six and seven and how the two relate to one another, uh, in, in making this connection. What is, is sure is that, um, that once David has possession of Jerusalem, he now comes into this realization that he's got to build Yahweh a house. And, and it, as it turns out, that seems to be pretty pivotal in the whole story. And the author may be making a, a stronger point here, but that, that Yahweh's kingship is first provided and bef- before the questions of Israel's kingship can really be taken up. So once David comes to the realization, Yahweh is king over us, and therefore, he needs a house in the capital city. At that point, then Israel's kingship can really be taken up and firmly established by the Lord. So the Lord can now say to David and to everyone else, okay, now, David, we're going to establish Israel's, Israel's line on the throne forevermore, and it's going to go through you. But it's not until the nation as a whole and the leader of the nation has firmly decided or maybe realized Yahweh is king over us, that that conversation can even then be, be had. And so um, it, uh, it's clear that, that, that now at this point in coming into chapter seven, the Lord is now ready to have the conversation about David's line remaining on the throne hereafter. And so only when they acknowledge the rule of Yahweh um, has this possibility of a royal line been uh, the possibility even been broached, uh, the conversation even been broached. But one thing we notice in the text that I think that is, is really important that we understand from the outset is that God had given rest to David from all his enemies. This is a tremendous point that carries through the entire scriptures, um, uh, even into the New Testament, particularly when we deal with this idea of both rest and Sabbath that you'll probably be much more familiar with. God, uh, it says in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1, you can read it there on your verse packet. It says, now when the enemies, uh, sorry, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. All of the conversation of chapter 7 begins at the point when God had given David rest from all his enemies. And the reason that that's really important is because it's only on that, that sort of Sabbath that the children of Israel are reminded that they're to take a rest from all of their work. Uh, six days shall, shall you work, and on the seventh you rest, because what, what happened on the seventh day? The Lord rested in creation. And so the Lord's rest in creation is sort of giving to uh, really Adam the ability to then pick up for the rest of the work week, essentially for the, the, the week two, as it were, is Adam's job to then create. But in, in the Lord and in the garden, Adam has rest certainly from all of his enemies. There are no enemies at that point until the serpent comes into the garden. And so um, the last time that Israel had had, had, had that, substantial of a rest was was the garden of eden if as it were and so now the lord is is giving them rest from their enemies through this kingly like figure 
as he establishes the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of this in the scriptures. There's just a lot of callbacks to more, more or less an Edenic type picture being built for the children of Israel. That as David is taking the helm of the kingdom and establishing his kingship in the land, um, there is rest from your enemies. I mean, think about when the last time you, Israel was able to, to sit down and just breathe and not have any enemies breathing down their neck. Um, and what becomes evident, it's not that Israel didn't have the Philistines out there, didn't have, you know, several other enemies that we're going to see later on in the text. It's not that they didn't have that out there. It's that Yahweh had gone before David and had driven them all out and, and was promising that he would continue to drive them out. And we're going to see that in just a minute. And so it's, it's more that what Yahweh, what, what the children of Israel have in David is this king-like figure that's really establishing once and for all, they, they think, or it seems, um, the sort of the, the Edenic kingdom of God. And that's a, a really comforting feeling. They have rest from their enemies. And so um, God then reminds David, uh, subsequent to his desire to build him a, a tabernacle, God reminds David, or build him a temple, God reminds David that since the time uh, Israel has been wandering through the desert, since they were in Egypt and then wandering through the desert, God has moved with the people of Israel in a tabernacle. And we talked about last week why that's important is because God is, is really relating to his people and, and teaching them and telling them that he is a God who dwells with his people. He doesn't only dwell on high. He dwells also with his people. We understand God in, a, in sort of a twofold capacity. One, he is, uh, as, as one theologian put it, he is wholly other meaning he is completely different than us, and he is holy and apart from us. Uh, at the same time, he, is, he dwells with us. We see that in the tabernacle. We see that in the Ark of the Covenant. We see that in the temple that's soon to be built. We see that in Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who is God in the flesh, taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us. We see that in so many capacities throughout the scriptures that he's not a God who only dwells on high as if his decisions have no impact on himself at all, but he is a God who dwells, who dwells with us. And so when it comes to this, the fall that we have experienced through Adam's sin, or when it comes to uh, the, the world being put under a curse, not only did God, uh, you know, institute that as a, as a punishment for our sin, but he actually dwelt among us and lived in it and suffered with us and was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And so those are, those are really significant ideas in the text. Um, and so we're reminded of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 to 9. Just let's read that real quick. But this, the same night, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I 
commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make of you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So God is not only saying I dwelt with my people, but David, I have also provided for you all these things. I don't need you to provide me anything. I, I'm, I have provided for you all these things. Uh, I have gone before you and I've never asked anybody to, to build me a house. And so why don't you just relax? Um, take five. Uh, essentially is, is God kind of giving to him a, a, a pause on all that. And so God then makes a pro, makes promises to David. In fact, I, I count, and depending on how you look at this, some of them you might see as kind of a, a, a couplet, like basically two promises that are saying the same thing. But if, if you count them just straight out, there are eight promises that God makes to David in this covenant that he makes with him. And I want to go through each one of them and just look at what, what promises he's making to them. Um, ultimately, I think they're going to be beneficial for us to see. So the first promise that he makes to him, he promises to make David a great name. So in your verse packet there, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9 and I have been with you where, wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So he promises to make him a great name. Um, well, we're here. We've spent two weeks on just Second Samuel 7, uh, 1 to 14-ish. And, um, and as, as proof that David has a great name, um, we're, we're studying about him today. We're going to spend a number of you know, weeks ahead talking about the various things that David has done and, and what kind of people what kind of um, people he shepherded and, so, and what kind of king he was. And so uh, David has a great name um, and God promised to make him a great name. Uh, he, he promises to appoint a place for his people and that's really through David, but he promises to, uh, to appoint a place for his people. Um, look at second Samuel seven, verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more A violent and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Um, so he promises a place. They're obviously going to dwell in the land and, uh, establish that land, uh, in relative safety. And he promises that to them. Uh, he promises to give them rest from their enemies. So this is, comes back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, he says, verse uh, chapter 7, verse 11, he says, from, that time, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, uh, to you that the Lord will make you a house. Um, uh, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but, but he promises to give them rest from all their enemies. And what that means, it, they're going to have enemies and they're going to have people that are around them. But what his promise is that he's going to, uh, fight for David and drive them all out. Now, what we're, we're also going to see in this, and this is where this really, uh, maybe it could be potentially difficult for us to wrap our mind around, but, the Lord is promising these things to David that he is going to do these things. And we find them being partially fulfilled under David. 
We find them being partially fulfilled under Solomon. We find them being partially fulfilled throughout Israel's time. Until we get to Christ, we see them fully fulfilled. But even in Christ's first coming, we don't see them, we, we still only see them, uh, well, I say, maybe, maybe you could say it's fair to say partially fulfilled in Christ's first coming and fully consummated in Christ's last coming, uh, Christ's second coming that we're still waiting on. So the way we've always talked about that is Christ's first coming, he inaugurated the fulfillment of these promises. And then in his second coming, he will consummate the, f- the fulfillment of these promises. So it, even in all of these promises that we're looking at, they won't, we won't see them totally come to fruition uh, until Christ. And so, um, so anyway, let's keep going. So third promise, he's going to give them rest from their enemies. Fourth promise, he says he's going to give to David offspring after him. So look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, this is a big deal because not just that someone would have children, but that someone would have male children. Um, That these, I mean, you think about it, there, there would be a number of people that would have only females and uh, and the Lord is promising, and he's going to promise this to be an everlasting covenant, that your li- your line will not be without a male heir to take the throne. And that, that's not an insignificant deal, uh, particularly for David, if you can imagine. Nowadays, especially in probably in American culture, probably less so, uh, you know, I think as maybe Justin Yoho could attest, it's just as good having girls as it is boys. <laughs> and maybe Blake McKinney could also attest, uh, yeah. it's just as good having girls as it is having boys. Uh, you know, so, and so um, it's certainly it's probably a lot different in our culture, but if you can think for them, preserving the, the line, preserving the throne, and David is essentially promised a male heir to take his throne uh, hereafter, which is, which is a good, a good thing. Um, also, with the, the amount of infant mortality, um, to not only have a male heir, but also him live to the age of being able to take the throne is not insignificant. Uh, so fifth promise, he promises to establish the kingdom of that offspring. So um, look at uh, 7, uh, 12 again. Uh, he says, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you should come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, meaning that that he's going to not only be raised up, but he's also going to take the throne. Uh, that would be another thing, not to war against the father or anything like that, but he's actually going to be able to uh, peacefully access the throne. Uh, the sixth promise, he promises to establish his throne forever. This is an incredible promise. Look at um, chapter 7, verse 13. He says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, part of this, you notice the very first part of this, he shall build a house for my name. We see, we'll see some of this come to fruition with Solomon, David's son, who will take the throne and will literally build a house for my name. And, uh, and his, the Lord promises to establish, renews the covenant with, with Solomon and promises to establish his throne forever. Um, and so that, you know, it's partially fulfilled in Solomon, but like I, I've mentioned a couple of times, Solomon's going to die and Solomon's going to do some really bad things actually. And, um, and Solomon's going to, well, he's going to behave a lot like a pagan, uh, most of his many, much of his life. And, um, and 
worship idols and all kinds of other things and marry tons of women that are going to lead his heart into idolatry. What, what is interesting is that in all of these promises, there's not just uh, the promise, but there's also some uh, ambiguity in the promise, meaning that these promises are going to be fulfilled, but there's no doubt that Israel does not fully understand these promises when they're first given. In most of Israel would think in giving these promises, and probably when Nathan heard them at first, uh, he interpreted them as being fulfilled in David, and David literally having a line. When David dies, there's going to be Solomon raised up, and they're going to have this, you know, perpetual, um, you know, grace-filled covenant with the Lord forever. And there's going to be no more enemies in the land. They're going to firmly possess the land. But the reality is that they misunderstand a lot of these promises and these promises, God's intention in these promises is much grander than they even realize at first. Um, For instance, you know, right after Solomon reigns, uh, Rehoboam is going to take the throne and the nation is going to be divided because of Solomon's errors and wickedness. And Rehoboam is going to divide the nation um, like it's never been divided before. And, uh, and, 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 so, and the kingdoms are going to really war against each other and they're never going to be really happy with each other again. And then just a few hundred years after that, they're going to be taken off into captivity and taken out of the land. And really to this day, they've not possessed the land like they did back under David and Solomon, really. And so these promises, though they they have some some measure of accomplishment to them in Solomon and David, they never really get fully fulfilled. And we'll see in a little bit that, that the rest of the Bible begins to pick up on this and realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think we've I think we've misunderstood a little bit about these promises and how God is actually going to fulfill them and how they are going to have to be fulfilled. So uh, we're going to see that in a moment. But the point is we see some immediate fulfillment of this in Solomon and we see more of it coming uh, later in uh, the eternal fulfillment coming in Jesus. So uh, he promises to establish his throne forever. Uh, He promises to be a father to David's offspring. So this is really covenant language that, that is, is meant to convey not just that the king will sit on the throne, but that God will be intimately involved with this king, that he is going to, he, he is going to take the role of shepherding this king's heart and disciplining him when, uh, when he doesn't, which brings me to the, the next one. He promises to discipline him when he commits iniquity. Um, depending on how you read this, you could see seven and eight as the same promise effectively, um, which I, I think it might kind of be, but, but he gave a specific promise to him in there in 714. I, wanna, I want you to see that. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of, of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And so there's two sides of this. It's not just that he's going to be intimately involved with him as a father, but but that also means he's going to discipline him. We see this theme of discipline coming up throughout the scriptures where God reminds us that the ones that he loves, he disciplines. His children, he disciplines. Uh, I've counseled a number of people over the years and, and the um, 
the the thing that I, I typically come back to and say to them when you, when you're talking to people who are are pursuing sin, um, there there's a what what I've always told them is if you go down this road of sin and you just continue on in sin and you ignore repentance altogether, one of two things is going to happen. At some point, God, if you are God's child, if you are his child, he's going to discipline you and it's going to hurt. And it's going to hurt a lot worse then than repentance would hurt now. Even though repentance will, will probably sting a little bit, it won't hurt nearly as bad as the discipline you'll face in the future. Then the, the, another possibility that may also happen is that you are not God's child and you're never going to receive the rod of correction. And that's even scarier of a, of a possibility. And so the promise that God is giving to David at this moment and then Solomon later and the line after him is that he's going to discipline David's line. And he does that. He, he the actions that are taken by the Babylonians and the Assyrians in taking them off to captivity is, is seen no, as nothing more than the Lord's discipline of them. The prophet Jeremiah, you, you can read the, the book of Jeremiah. It's, it's pretty lengthy, but, and I think you should read it. But what you will see coming up time and time again is that the Lord is going to judge the nation of Israel uh, for a multitude of things. They have dug out cisterns of their own making, essentially, that the Lord didn't provide them, meaning they've worshipped idols and they disobeyed the Lord. But then the other thing that Jeremiah gets to is they didn't let the land rest. They're told on a regular basis that every seventh year they're to let the land rest, and every 49th year, seven sevens, they're supposed to let the land rest for seven years. And so um, they don't. we don't really have much of a record of them ever doing that. Um, and so... It was clear that they, they were intent on not obeying the Lord in that. And so their take being taken off to captivity was the Lord's discipline of them. But the encouragement in that, in the Lord's discipline, and if you've ever felt the Lord's discipline personally, you'll know the encouragement in that is that you are his child. That's not insignificant. And so if you're in a place where potentially you've become aware of sin in your life, and maybe it's sin that has wrecked your family, or maybe it has wrecked your, uh, your you know, people that are near you, your friends and things like that. Maybe it's brought a great deal of embarrassment to you, and you're having to eat a ton of crow. And not only that, but you're having to go before the Lord, and you just feel this weight of guilt for the amount of sin that, that you have done. And you're still trying to wrap your mind around the forgiveness that he's given to you in Christ. Um, you know, that, that is the Lord's discipline. Br- making you aware of sin and bringing you to the point of confession and worshiping the Lord, that, that's discipline that you're feeling. And the, the encouragement that you need to feel in that is that the Lord disciplines his own. He doesn't discipline anyone else's children. He disciplines his own children. And so the comfort there is that I'm a child of the Lord because I'm receiving his discipline. Um, I, I tell my kids that from time to time and they don't, it doesn't make sense to them. And I tell them, you know, I, I told Grayson one time, the reason that I spank you is because I love you and because you're my child. And I remember him looking at me and this look of, this puzzling look come over his, came over his face and he shook his head and he said, no, 
Because in his mind, if you love your kid, you don't punish them. You don't spank them. And then I, I confused him probably even further when I said, do I spank anyone else's kids? And he said, no. And I said, right, because I don't love them like they're my own kids. I spank my own kids because I love them. And, um, and so, you know, not that I don't love your children, but, uh, but, but, you know, those things don't necessarily make sense to us as children until we take a step back and we think about it for just a minute that to, to be able to stop wickedness and to stop sin and to, to stop us down the road of sin is an example of the Lord for us. And so I think we can, we can even be encouraged in, in that too, but, uh, let's move on. Unless there's any questions, Blake, are there any? Uh, no, no questions. Okay. Um, so what we do see is that the, the Hebrew term covenant doesn't, is, is not in this chapter. We're not going to see the word covenant in this particular chapter. However, the term covenant does show up in a number of other texts referring back to this moment when God promised this to David. So it is clear that although the, the writer of 2 Samuel 7 did not include the word covenant in the passage, the Old Testament history and New Testament has, you know, uh, ruled, essentially. This is a covenant. And what we also see is that the Davidic covenant um, anticipated uh, is, is, is anticipated in the Mosaic covenant. We get a, a word in the Mosaic covenant that a Davidic covenant is coming, a, a something along the lines is coming. You'll remember probably all the way back to Deuteronomy. You may remember it. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 says, when you come to, this is Moses talking to the children of Israel. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and, and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So there's, there's a promise of a king coming, and they know that. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only uh, he must not acquire many horses. And he, he kind of goes into this long explanation of what he, what he can't do. Um, and he sh- shouldn't acquire many wives for himself. That's a, a big faux pas of the kings. Uh, verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. This is another thing, that, another way the kings of Israel sin. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law. And these he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So there's this idea in even Moses' words as they come into, as they're approaching the land, that, um, that, that, um, that the Lord is, so long as the king adheres to the law that God had given through the Mosaic covenant, then the king will be established on that throne and his line will be established on that throne forever so long as he doesn't turn to the right or to the left of it, which we obviously see the kings uh, do not. David, for the most part, it seems does. When he's corrected, he he repents. Um, so, and we'll, we can talk about the Mosaic covenant a little bit later on in subsequent weeks, but some of the, the important things you have to remember about the Mosaic covenant 
it was not, and when I say Mosaic Covenant, I mean the, the law, what we typically find in, in Leviticus and the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, it wasn't required that you be perfect. In fact, in the Mosaic Covenant is provision for when you sin. So David is not perfect. And when, when he says here, not turn to the right or to the left, it doesn't mean that he's not going to sin. The expectation is he is going to sin, but that he wouldn't ignore the call to repentance that the Lord then gives to him. And so we see David, he, you know, with Bathsheba, you know the story well, he, he sins with Bathsheba. But when Nathan calls him out on it, and we see Psalm 51, we see uh, his response there when Nathan says, thou art the man, that he repents. And so that, that's what's required in the Mosaic Covenant. That's what, what he's talking about. So long as the king does that and, and adheres to repentance, um, he'll m- remain on the throne forever. And if not, he'll be disciplined by the Lord. Um, so uh, moving on, the Davidic king is an expression of God's theocratic rule in Israel. So God has established the Davidic king to rule through him. David, and that's the importance of David dancing crazy and the whole conversation with Michael and all that that happens afterwards. David understands God is on the throne. God is the king. I am his servant and God is ruling through me. And so the David's line, and what God is even recognizing here is that David has recognized that God is on the throne and he's establishing a theocratic rule that, that he's ruling through David. And as we just saw, he also uh, was to lead Israel in faithful observance to the Mosaic law. That he was, it was required for him to write out the Mosaic law. It was, that law was to be approved by the priest, make sure that it was right. Um, he was to read it all the days of his life. We don't really have any record of the, of the kings really doing much of that as far as like writing it out. Um, we don't know if David did. Some of the Psalms attest to David being a pretty ardent reader of the law. So maybe perhaps he did. I don't know. Um, but the, the, the idea was that, that he would lead the whole nation in faithful observance. We'll see this in Josiah. Josiah takes the throne. He brings the nation back to faithful observance uh, to the Lord through his law. Um, so the, the Davidic king was to be an expression of the, God's theocratic rule, and he was to reflect faithful observance to the Mosaic law um, you know, through, through that kingship. Now, there are a few covenants that we've talked about so far. We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant and we've talked about the Mosaic covenant uh, some months, months ago. And those, those basically do two very important things in God establishing his kingdom. First, the Abrahamic covenant had promised a, a realm and a people for God's kingdom. You remember when he called Abraham out, he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So he's establishing a people and he tells him, you're going to come back to this land. You're going to dwell here on this land. Your, your ancestors are going to, or your progeny, I should say, are going to dwell here on this land. Um, I'm going to establish them on this land. And so he, he gives them a realm, a place to, to, to dwell. And then he establishes a people for them, for them to, uh, to make up the kingdom. So very important, a people and a, you might say a realm or you might say a place, a people and a place or a realm to dwell in. So that was the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant 
provided the law of that kingdom. So here is not only the place they're to dwell in or the realm they're to dwell in. Here's not only the people that are going to be the people, but here is also the law which will govern the kingdom. So um, a a people, a place, and a law um, probably also needs a P, um, a Pala, uh, so that they they need to dwell under. Not a good Baptist alliteration there, but... um, now, so we've got, so we've got the, the realm, we have the people, we have the law that would govern them and really sort of, if you will, bind them together. And then you have the Davidic covenant now providing that human king for the kingdom to actually shepherd and guide and lead them and uh, lead them to adhere to that law that has been, has been given. So that it's not just up to each individual to, to adhere to that law, but the human king there will be speaking it on behalf of God, really, uh, to the nation to be guiding them through that, that, uh, that law of the kingdom. Um, all right. And so, uh, does everybody have that? The last one there, thumbs up. A human king, the last one there. Uh, realm people. That was a lot of blanks to fill in before I go to the next slide. Um, so, <clears throat> so what we can see is that what happened in the fall of Adam falling away and and really all of humanity with him being removed from uh, the kingdom of God. I mean, there, there's no other way to see the Garden of Eden but but that that kingdom on earth the people of God are then removed with Adam from the kingdom. And now we have God essentially working backwards through humanity, coming back into that kingdom of God, where this image bearer, David would be seated on the throne, would be established as the son of God, the image of God, leading the people of God through the law of God, and what is he doing? He's exercising dom- the dominion of God um, through the land. And he's to conquer the land. He's to drive out, uh, purge the evil person from among him. He's, he's to drive out all of the ones that would not adhere to the law of God. And so he's establishing not only the law, he's not only establishing the, the place where the people dwell, he's not only establishing the people, um, and he's not only... Get, adhering to the law, but that is exercising the dominion of the kingdom of God that ultimately Adam failed to do and the kings will also fail to do uh, and Jesus will not fail to do. Um, question, are there any questions about that? Because that's, that's a, those are deep. I think that's deep stuff. Uh, no one has asked any yet. Uh, I okay. got one. Okay, go ahead. Oh, Who is this? Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just that 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 last point you made just kind of just just blew over my head. Um, okay. Can I, you, was we, there a particular part of it that was that was the hard part? Uh, uh all of it. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, just um, uh, just David being the image bearer. Yeah. Um. um so. <laughs> David is, remember Psalm 2? Do you remember going back to Psalm 2? Um, if you think about it, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That was seen as a coronation psalm 
for David. Um, when the king sits on the throne uh, of, of Israel, I mean, when David sits on the throne, he is seen as uh, God ruling through him, God ruling the people of Israel through David. So he is established as the son of God who is ruling the people, but it's not, it's not necessarily the son of God ruling in particular or the king ruling in particular. It's really that people are looking at David and going, through him, God is ruling us. Okay, does that make sense? So yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so now what David is then doing by leading the people in faithfulness to the Mosaic law, that is the law of the kingdom of God, Old Testament. That is the law of the kingdom of God, the Mosaic law. By leading the people to an adherence to the Mosaic law, by and 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 thus by and and then by ridding the land of all those who would fail to adhere to the Mosaic law, um, David is exercising the dominion of the kingdom of God there on earth and ruling as the son of God who is bearing God's image. Uh, so go back. You'll have to go back. Think back with me all the way back to when God creates Adam. He creates man in his image, man and fe- male and female. He created them that they may uh, have dominion over the earth. Remember that? That's what he says. That's what, what he says is that he says, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the earth and everything within it. They're going to have dominion. Well, Adam ultimately fails at that. And so the image of God, while we're still made in the image of God, the image of God is marred because we're not exercising the dominion of God on the earth. But when David comes back into the land and is established as the king, the son of God, and he's leading people in covenant faithfulness to the Mosaic law, he's exercising the dominion of the kingdom of God. Right? The, but the reality that we're going to see, and, and perhaps this is a, maybe a bit of a spoiler alert, but, but part, part of the, what we're going to see is that the people... And, and this is, I think, God's intention of exposing to the nation of Israel and to all humanity. You can't faithfully adhere to even the Mosaic law. Does that make sense? You, you can't. The Mosaic law would be junior league to the law of heaven. Right? So God says here in the Mosaic law, don't murder but you can't even do that because we, we hate in our heart, right? Jesus tells us that. You can't even do that. You can't not murder. Now, think about what, what God's law in heaven would look like. So if you were to just be transported up to heaven and you were to just take a survey around, is there a law posted somewhere, don't murder anyone? Well, no, because... When we're in the presence of God, when we're perfect and let's say we're glorified and we have glorified bodies and we're all dwelling together on a new earth, we don't have to have a rule that says don't murder. We don't even hate in our heart. So 
what, what's, what, what's borne out over this whole process of the Old Testament is that the children of Israel cannot even obey the, the law of Moses. And so David won't be fully capable of exercising dominion over the, the, by, by instituting the, the law of Moses. That won't happen at all. We, we don't have that capability. But then what does God say in the prophets? But that he's going to give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Where we're going to be able to adhere to and obey not just the law of Moses, but the law of the kingdom of heaven. Where we're actually going to, by the, by the, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, not only not murder our brother, but actually love our brother and not hate our brother in our heart. So, um, so Jesus is the only one, as it turns out, that's actually going to be able to establish that, that where God can actually take up residence in his people and give them the ability in the church to, to, to live out the commandments of the kingdom of, of God. Um, now that's going into a little bit further, uh, down the road, but does that answer your question, Shannon? Does it help flesh it out a little bit more? Okay. Um, Hey, Michael. If there are any more questions, type them in or what? Yes, you have another question from Sean Mobs. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, did the people see David this way then, or is this something we observe now through the scripture we have now? Um, that's a good question. I would say the answer is yes. They do see David that way. David does see himself that way. Um, there are going to be exceptions to that, for sure. Um, but I think there's no question that the people are general, generally accepting this role of David. Um, and, and his sons. Keep in mind, this the book of second Samuel or the book of Samuel was written after David's kingship, no doubt, but probably not long. And I think probably before they go into exile, not only that, but they kept the lineage of David, even in exile, they knew who would be sitting on the throne were they to be in their place? Um, so it's, it's pretty clear through Israel's history, even in just their record keeping of genealogies, that they knew and understood what David was and what his significance was. Um, so, so yes, they do. Now, they're going to transgress that. And after Rehoboam or during Rehoboam's reign, they're going to split up. And there's going to be an entire northern kingdom that doesn't recognize David's line. So that's true. But, uh, but I think in, even in this time, they are recognizing what God is doing through David. But I, but I think they would say that of Saul too, back in Saul's day, that God, he's God's man until they realize, no, he's not. <laughs> David is, you know, so, um, so I, I, it's hard to answer. I do think that they do recognize it to some degree, um, but obviously the, the biblical writers spell it out a little bit more. And it's, and as we'll see a little bit later on, it's not until the prophets that we get more, more fullness in this a little bit. Yeah. Any other questions, Blake? 
Uh, that's all I got. Okay. Um, here, here's, let me go through a couple more of these and, and we'll save some of this because there's, there's, there's a lot here and there's probably a lot of questions uh, about this, but in the interest of time, what I'm going to do is I don't want to rush through any of these. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these, the blanks that we didn't get to, and I'm going to put them on next week's worksheet. We're going to continue on through that. So don't panic that we don't get to all the blanks, um, but I'll, I'll give you just a, a, maybe one or two more. Um, in Genesis, you'll remember, now we, we have to ask the question, why, why David? Um, and we go all the way back to Genesis 49.10, where we see the answer, and you'll see that in your verse packet, first page toward the bottom. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Jacob as, or Israel, as he is blessing his sons before he dies, make sure that we understand that Judah, it's from the tribe of Judah that the scepter is going to be, meaning the, the, the kingly scepter is going to be from the tribe of Judah. And so we see the, David as the fulfillment of that. Um, David is of the line of Judah. Uh, ultimately, Jesus is going to be, obviously, of the line of, of the tribe of Judah. We, they call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is also a reference back to this um, Genesis 49 um, uh, reference. So uh, I don't want to go any further than that because – most of these that are underneath tile together. So I'm going to save all those for next week. Are there any questions that you might not have typed in the box or you might have? None. Shannon, Shannon's got one. No. <laughs> I'm going to stop the sharing escape here. All right. Well, okay. Um, the, the, as you, so here, here's what I want you to do. If you can uh, read through the Davidic covenant again, this second Samuel chapter seven, uh, the, especially the first part um, again, and just think about it. Uh, jot down questions that you might have. Maybe go back over the worksheet, jot down questions you might have. And, um, and then we can tackle some of those next week uh, as we kind of continue on this. Um, you know, the, the, how David's covenant is fulfilled in Jesus and all this, I think is, is pivotal. It's really important for us understanding the Sermon on the Mount it's really important for understanding Matthew. I mean, good grief. It, Matthew's prologue could practically be this passage. Um, because what Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy that goes right through Abraham and David. And so to understand what Jesus is even saying in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, when, he's, when he says, you know, uh, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. When he says all of those things, that's, um, 
that is, that is, he's calling back to this um, Davidic covenant in some sense that he's, he's here as an adherent to the Mosaic law to help you understand the intention of the Mosaic law and to obey a higher order even than the Mosaic law, um, which is what he ultimately gives right after that. So it, all of this is, is just really fundamentally important to understanding Jesus. And so you know, go back through it, think about it, jot down questions you have, because I don't want to leave this until, um, until we, we you know, have kind of a good foundation of it. Uh, all right. If there are no other questions, then I will close this in prayer and we will, uh, I'll open up all the microphones after the prayer and y'all can all say, Hey, how you doing? Um, also you can call each other on the phone. That's another good thing. Um, you can even FaceTime for those of you who can figure that out. Um, so let's, pr- let's pray. Heavenly father, we are so grateful, um, to just gather together and reflect for just a moment on David and the covenant that you made with him that uh, forever changed our lives ultimately in Jesus. Um, What a tremendous blessing we have. And I know, I am confident that I have not even touched the tip of the iceberg on this. And I am confident that I, the un, my understanding of this is a drop in the ocean. So uh, I pray for wisdom as, as I teach this. I pray for uh, understanding for all of us as we read, as we think, um, as we study. But most of all, I pray, Lord, that in the study of this, of the Davidic covenant and how it's fulfilled in Jesus, that you would blow our minds with things we've never thought about before. And that what we would uncover there is just a mountain of mystery and wonder and awe that we can have of you because of all the ways that you've worked throughout history to bring about the culmination of your plans in Christ. And that we, insignificant as we are, as minuscule and microscopic as we are, might be included in that plan is a phenomenon that we will never fully wrap our minds around, but is wonderful, too wonderful even to grasp, I think. And so, Lord, I I pray that, that you would take what little we understand of it and grow it and expand it and, and blow it up to the point where we are awestruck by your love for us demonstrated in Christ. Um, we are awestruck by your holiness and your perfection and also your uh, love, your mercy and grace, all of those things that we see coming into culmination in the cross of Jesus. 
may we just forever be trying to wrap our minds around that and continually being awestruck by it, that we may, that it may lead us into a deeper relationship with you and a fervency in worship that we've never felt before. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.